Blog Talk Radio.
family, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is Saturday, uh, June uh, the 11th, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And uh, in this episode, we continue our focus on Black Music Month. In the Pan-African Newswire segment also, we look at the ongoing war in Ukraine and how it has fueled inflation uh, in the United States and throughout the capitalist world. The Sudan Forces for Freedom and Change, the FFC, has held a press conference to discuss the proceedings of a meeting uh, which was held with the military regime. An attempted coup in the North African state of Libya has worsened the already precarious security situation. And in the North African state of Morocco, a musical ensemble has raised questions surrounding gender and national culture. In the second and third hours, we will feature historical discussions on African music in the United States and around the world. Uh, We have a special uh, focus on Howlin' Wolf, uh, Mr. Chester Arthur Barnett. Also, we examine the origins of the blues, uh, jazz, and soul music over the last century. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We will take a musical interlude, and uh, this is an album uh, showing the links uh, between African music and African music from the Caribbean island nation of Cuba. The album is entitled Congos to Cuba. Uh, Let's listen in. Oh, 
linda melodía Con sabor
Yeah. 
Puerto Franca hay una estrella En un triángulo se posa El insignia más preciosa Que tiene mi Cuba bella
se come también, si no vacilo, se come también, que para gozar, giriribomo, giriribomo,
Chico Alvarez uh, from Cuba, uh, Mama Sissoko uh, from Guinea, uh, Alfredo Valdez from Cuba as well, Nonas Pedros uh, from Benin, uh, Shala Moana from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and uh, Bala Tunkara uh, from Mali, uh, Laba Soste uh, from Gambia, Monte Andentro uh, from Cuba, and Chocolate Amin. Teros uh, from Cuba as well, and Mama Keita, of course, from Guinea again, and Pape Fall, uh, who is from the West African state of Senegal, a classic album entitled uh, Congo to uh, Cuba. And uh, we're going to right now move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and these are some of the headlines in the Pan-African Newswire for today. U.S. President Joe Biden's attempt to blame Moscow for high inflation rates in the United States is unconvincing. That's according to Russian First Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations, Dmitry Polyansky. He wrote this on Twitter. Looks like President Putin is governing the U.S. as well, since he can impose taxes on food and gas. Unconvincing and futile attempts by the U.S. President to shift the blame and escape his responsibilities The tweet uh, reads, Biden said earlier that inflation was a real challenge to American families. We've never seen anything like Putin's tax on both food and gas, uh, he added. The U.S. Department of Labor said earlier that the consumer price index had increased 8.6% from a year earlier. On February the 24th, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a special military operation based on a request from the heads of the Donbass Republic. The Russian leader stressed that Moscow had no plans to occupy Ukrainian territories, and the goal was to demilitarize and denazify the country. In response, the West imposed major sanctions on Russia. In addition, Western countries started to provide weapons and military equipment to Kiev, whose total value is currently estimated at billions of dollars. And in other news, uh, Western regimes' attempts to cancel Russia only expose their obsessive belief that the world revolves around them. A Russian Foreign Intelligence Service director and Russian Historical Society chairman, Sergei Nariskin, uh, said at the opening ceremony of an exhibition dedicated to Russia's achievements uh, earlier today 
I am deeply convinced that attempts by the West liberally totalitarian regimes to cancel Russia only expose their obsessive belief that the world revolves around them and obeys their wishes and orders. However, that's not really the case, uh, which is proved uh, by Russia's thousand-year history. Russia preserves the traditions of Alexander Nevsky, Dmitry Donskoy, Peter I, uh, Catherine the Great, uh, Pyotr Stolypin, uh, Grigory Zukov, Yuri Gagarin, and many other great sons and daughters of our country, Nariskin added. It is impossible to overestimate Russia's contributions to the development of humanity, including the history of culture and science, the exploration of the vast expanses of Siberia, the Far East, and the Arctic, the great geographical discoveries, the exploration of space, and finally the victory over Nazi Germany and the liberation of Europe and the entire world from Nazism, he stressed. On the African continent, the World Food Program said it provided food and nutrition assistance to over 2.4 million people in the Republic of Sudan in April alone, uh, with 2 million of them benefiting through in-kind food and cash-based transfers. The United Nations Agency, in its country brief, uh, said the volume of food and cash distributed in April amounted to 5,500 million tons and 5.2 million, respectively. It, however, said uh, 326 million million six-month net funding requirements are needed to enable it to provide food and nutrition assistance between May and October of 2022, according to preliminary reports provided by the World Food Program, intercommunal fighting which erupted on the 22nd through the 24th of April in West Darfur's Karanek and Gianni resulted in a, at least 165 deaths and an estimated 98,000 people being displaced. Food and livelihood needs are high as the majority of the people lost all their food stocks and possessions during the conflict and are unable to carry on their usual livelihood activities. Uh, Due to the security situation, the World Food Program temporarily suspended food distribution and the United Nations Humanitarian Air Service suspended its flights in and out of Janina for three days, partly uh, reads the brief. And uh, another news uh, from uh, the Republic of of Sudan uh, in regard to the mass democratic movement uh, that has been taking place inside the country, the Forces for Freedom and Change, the FFC yesterday, reiterated they do not seek to restore partnership with the military component, but to end the October 25th coup. For the first time after the coup, delegations from the FFC and the military component held a meeting brokered by Mali V. U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, and Ali Ben Hassan Jafar, Saudi Ambassador to Khartoum. The FFC delegation held a press conference yesterday to inform the Sudanese about the purpose and the outcome of the meeting, uh, which was strongly criticized by discussion groups and social media. The meeting was not a step for the partnership, but to end it, uh, said one of the three members FFC delegation that met the coup delegation together with Al Watik Abria of the National Uma Party and Taha Ishag of the Sudanese Professional Alliance. We have not gone in search of a new partnership, but to establish a new relationship between the regular forces and the people Armand further stressed. 
You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the North African state of Libya, clashes between armed groups erupted uh, in the capital on Friday night, according to local media, as the country reels from a failed coup attempt just three weeks ago. Heavy exchanges of gunfire and explosions ricocheted across several districts of Tripoli on yesterday, according to a correspondent, uh, while images broadcast by local press showed civilians fleeing heavily trafficked areas. The intense fighting involved two influential militias in Western Libya, local media reported. No casualties or motive for the fighting were immediately apparent, but it is the latest violence uh, to rock the country as two rival prime ministers vie for power. After a 2011 counter-revolution that toppled longtime revolutionary Pan-Africanist and statesman Muammar Gaddafi, political infighting uh, to fill the power vacuum has plagued the all-rich Libya. Uh, Libya was destroyed at the aegis of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and its allies uh, throughout uh, the capitalist world. Last month, politician Fatih Bashaga attempted to seize power by force, sparking pre-dawn clashes between armed groups supporting him and those backing interim Premier Abdul Hamid Beba. Uh, Beba was appointed under a troubled UN-led peace process early uh, last year to lead a transition to elections set for December of 2021, but the vote was indefinitely postponed. And finally, in the North African state of Morocco, men in makeup and wigs twirl on stage in colorful robes to applause in Morocco, resurrecting the musical art of Aita and challenging gender stereotypes in the conservative Muslim-majority kingdom. Uh, members of the all-male cabaret Shakat troupe including singers, actors, and dancers, hope their unique performance of an art once dominated by women can revive the tradition. This art, based on oral histories, traces its roots back to the 12th century and draws its poetic strength from daily life, said writer and poet Hassan Najmi. The group travels across the North African nation, mapping out the many varieties of Eta, a genre that has long been popular in the countryside. Recently back from a tour of the United States, they staged a boisterous performance that brought the audience in a packed theater in Ramat to their feet with men and women dancing in the aisles. The music narrates traditional life and describes Morocco's spectacular nature, as well as talking frankly of love and sex. When Morocco was under the grip of French rule from 1912 to 1956, Etat became a form of anti-colonial resistance expressed in dialects the authorities had no chance of understanding. The songs gained world recognition in the late 19th century under Sultan Hassan I. And with that, that we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, 
just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, uh, June the 11th, 2022, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, This is uh, Black Music Month, and of course, uh, we're going to listen to the music of... uh, Mr. Chester Arthur Barnett, uh, popularly known as Howlin' Wolf, and this one is called Crying at Daybreak.
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the voice and music of uh, Chester Arthur Burnett, uh, known professionally as Holland Wolf. And uh, Holland Wolf was born on June 10th of 1910. He made his transition on January the 10th of 1976. Uh, he was originally from Sunflower County, Mississippi, and he uh, settled in Chicago uh, later in adult life. Uh, And, of course, uh, he was uh, one of the major uh, blues uh, men coming out of Chicago, along with uh, Mr. McKinley Morganfield, uh, better known as Muddy Waters. Uh, Alan Wolf had a booming voice and imposing physical presence. He is one of the best known of the Chicago blues artists. And uh, we're going to listen to a documentary on uh, the lifetimes and contributions of Mr. Chester Arthur Burnett, uh, better known as Howlin' Wolf. Broke when I was born, that's where you get them howling. A lot of people's wondering, what is the blues? I hear a lot of people saying the blues, the blues, but I'm going to tell you what the blues is. When you ain't got no money, you got the blues. When you ain't got no money to pay your house rent, you still got the blues. A lot of people holler about, I don't like no blues, but when you ain't got no money and can't pay your house rent and can't buy you no food, you damn sure got the blues. If you ain't got no money, you got the blues, because you're thinking evil. That's right. Anytime you're thinking evil, you're thinking about the blues. Well, when we first started playing together, we started playing because we wanted to play rhythm and blues, and Howling Wolf was one of our greatest idols, and it's a great pleasure to find you've been booked on this show tonight. It really is a pleasure. Thanks to Howling Jack.
everything you possess and don't need nothing, you don't have no right to worry about nothing. But when you ain't got nothing, then you got to worry about something. And that's why the blues come in. And Lord, first thing you say, you know, I don't have this. And I don't have that. And you look over there at these other people, and they got this and got that. And in your heart, you feel like that you ain't nobody. You got the blues. My dad was, you know, he died when I was 50 years old. Wolf looked at Hubert like, like, like his son. He taught me a lot, man. He taught me a lot about music, uh, you know, guitar and everything. Oh, our big brother. That's our brother. He's our big brother. brother. Yeah. You know, he and Hubert always had their fights, but they loved each other to the bitter end. It was and healthy. Hubert had his back and he had <laughs> Hubert's right, back. That's for sure, you know. Well, the words, I know what he was going to do before he did it, you know. <laughs> that's, just like, that's just like father and son, man. Wolf was like the biggest guy I'd ever met. He would come in and shake my hand, and I would always, it was like putting my hand in a baseball glove. It was that big. If you say something to him, you better be right. You better say it to him right. You know what I'm talking about? He walked off and, hey man, nice knowing you. He was like a man that just been taking a man. It was like flipping a coin with Wolf. He had this sweet, quiet side to him, and he had this tough, big, intense side to him that could be triggered. He was a no nonsense type of guy, you know. A lot of people, the musician thought he was hard, hardly, but he wasn't. He just ran the band like a band should be run. On stage, he was a wild man. Um, he was like a feral beast stalking the stage. He was the wolf. his acts and people just went wow he could rouse an audience he'd walk that bar he'd crawl it then jump up down on it and then he'd go out the door hollering out there on the street blowing his hammer because he had a long cord on his microphone he had you know the, the coke bottle in his pants and and, and crawling around but he was he was helping out there he'd take his, take his handkerchief and stick it back in the, in the back of his belt like a tail Start howling up and down the bar. But off stage, he was a very uh, hardworking, um, kind of a straight-laced guy. He did transform from what I remember, you know, from dad to the stage the person. But he knew that was his job, and he knew people expected a lot. They paid their money. They wanted to go out and have a good time. Now listen, peoples. I'm going to show you how to play the blues. Now you just sit here and watch me. Sweep up the house. And she jump up and say, sweep it up yourself. I'm gonna get up. 
you know, he had finally found, found a home. On the plantation, man come through there picking a guitar called Charlie Patton, and I like the sound. Will you kill a man? Yes, I will. Take my love, I am a fool Don't take me long to get my. did want to play a guitar so I got him to show me a few chords you know every night that I'd get off for work I'd go over to his house and he'd learn me how to pick the guitar so I got good with it so I went out for myself and the people went for what I was putting down and I decided that uh, I would play so I asked my father to get me a guitar 1928, 15th day of January. He went and got me a guitar, and uh, I started picking the guitar first. I'm open house. They found me howling at your door. I'm the open house, baby. They found me howling at your door. Give me what I want I won't lay around and howl no more Then I had a woman once She was kind of nice to me And she pulled off and left me And that gave me the blues Shown up I went to howling like a dog then You know I played all through Arkansas Mississippi Louisiana Alabama and and uh, around in Kentucky, but I played all over the, the the Cotton Belt countries, you know. During World War II, he uh, ended up in Seattle and Oregon. I stayed in the army three years. I've done all my training, you know. Yeah, I'm at the army, all right, but they, they put so much on a man, you know what I mean? And my nerves couldn't take it, you know. They are they drilled us so hard it just. Not to give me a nervous breakdown, you know what I mean? Late in the evening, and the sun is smacking down on me. scene was changing. I mean, it was all being mechanized, and people were being thrown out of work. And since they were being thrown out of work, there was less money for a Delta player. I mean, the old juke joints were closing down. People didn't have money to throw around, and people were moving to the cities. And so one of the first cities they moved to from uh, the Delta was Memphis. <laughs>
got the Father of Waters here. I believe it's known as the mighty old muddy Mississippi. We got the Delta land. We got blacks and whites. Now you get the augmentation of people from southeast Missouri, northwest Alabama, northern Mississippi, eastern Arkansas, northeast Louisiana. Now what more do you need? Now Memphis itself was a pretty uh, closed town. There was a curfew there for black people after 11 o'clock at night. But West Memphis was wide open. There was money there, uh, gambling, all sorts of vice. And so it was a good place for a musician to go and make money. His band was the hottest thing going in West Memphis. And West Memphis was where all the money was. It was just a juke joint. It might have been an old house out in the woods. Especially Friday and Saturday nights was a big night, you know, especially for, because we played for mostly all blacks all the time, you know, and uh, uh, you might have a kitchen over to the side of the bandstand and back in the back, uh, a house where they put the called shooting crap, and out in the front of the little bandstand, that's where everybody danced. They were also extremely dangerous. People had guns and knives. People got hurt all the time in those places. I mean, everybody was drinking corn liquor and getting kind of crazy. We've had 30 minutes on air on this radio station in, in West Memphis, Arkansas. And he give us 15 minutes. Give the James Cotton 15 minutes on air with us in the band, you know? Man, I thought that was great. Back there, with kids, you know. Some days we'd go over there and, and, and we'd play the show with him, play live music. And he actually um, got, the, got the advertisers himself. Sam Phillips heard from one of his friends that there was this guy in the radio, uh, this guy who called himself Howling Wolf. And Sam tuned in one day and was just blown away by Wolf's voice, as everybody was. Chester Burnett, one of the greatest artists I ever recorded in my life. They cut a couple of demos and uh, Sam Phillips sent them off to, I believe he sent them off to RPM Records, uh, which was a Los Angeles company run by the Bihari brothers. And they were interested. Sam brought Wolf back in and did a full session. And um, out of that came Moanin' at Midnight and How Many More Years, his first record. How many more years I've got to let your dog be around to let them know that I wanted to hear what they heard and not to try to please a white man because he happened to quote unquote be in the control and in control of the session. Sam Phillips actually ended up sending that to the Chess Brothers rather than to the Baharis. So that started a bidding war, especially when the record took off. It ended up being a big hit. I'll on my knees.
Crush Brothers really wanted him, and so did uh, the Bihari Brothers. It fomented a bidding war, and what happened was the Chesses ended up with uh, Wolf in return for the Bihari Brothers getting Roscoe Gordon, who was also recording for Sam Phillips. And that's when uh, Wolf decided to move to uh, Chicago. Putting this is what he said, young man, I'm putting the band down, I'm going to Chicago. If I send for you, will you come? Cotton looked at me. Hey, man, are you I go? See, you'll make more money with him than you will me. <laughs> he made lots of money. Wolf always said that uh, I'm the onlyest one that drove out of the Delta on my own. And that's what he did when he moved to Chicago. He drove up there in his own car. He said he had $4,000 cash in his pocket, which back then was, you know, uh, a huge fortune. village in Poland and came to the west side of Chicago and the, some of the first people they met were black people some of the first music they heard was black music being that there were no blacks in Europe where they came from it was a whole new experience no uh, premeditated prejudice at all existed my family came to America the blacks came to Chicago for a main reason to make money these uh, black or blue singers probably lived in one room without electricity in the South, and just like my family did in Poland. So Chicago was a place where the jobs were here, and there was, uh, everybody was from the South. So they all had a, a, a bond there. It was good to be away from down there, but it was good to hear the music, and, and there was a certain amount of freedom in Chicago. He found me when I first got with him, on the counter. I played with a scrape pick, and I run all over him, and he couldn't get his voice out. He said, you fired. Say, I tell you, young man, although I got you here, you go on. Put the pick down, number one. So cry your fingers, you know. Number two, he said, listen to the records. He said, when you come back, he said, you're going to be all right. You may learn something. Sure enough, I found myself, man. I found my tone. I put the picks down. I ain't thought of them picks no more. I had the sound. I had everything that he needed. So, from here on, just like that, man. He was into self-improvement. He went to school late in life. He never got any schooling as a kid, so he was basically functionally illiterate until he was, you know, probably in his, in his 50s. He went to school five years uh, for music and, and, and three years for, for learning. I'd read and write, arithmetic, subtract, multiply. When we was playing at Silvio's, there was three three bands, Muddy's band, Wolf's band, and my band. And on intermission, he'd have on his glasses, and he'd be sitting at a table going over his, his, his lessons. That guy learned how to write, read, and then no kidding. And learn his guitar. My wolf ran a, a, a really tight band. And I mean, the guys, uh, he paid them well. And they worked six, seven nights a week. He always, he always had a job. 
working all over Chicago. He recorded that smokestack lightning. He was really well known. And we played a place here in Memphis called the Hippodrome, which was down on Bill Street. And that, that particular time, we drew more people than anyone that had ever been in, in uh, the Hippodrome. Well, smokestack lightning means a train, you know, that... Uh uh, runs on the rail, you know. Opposites attract, right? They always say, and uh, I guess he was pretty persistent about it. And she eventually gave it, and it was happy she did. <laughs> yeah. I think it was kind of love at first sight. Yeah, that but she was trying to resist <laughs> because of her religious, deeply religious back. You know, grandma, grandmother was deeply religious. She didn't like blues too much, then I don't think. And then after they really got together and really started seeing each other often, then she began to like the blues. She kind of took over the business part of his band, and she, she did a really good job at it. She was excellent at it, and in fact, you know, Wolf ended up being, he had one of the most business-like bands ever. He actually paid the unemployment insurance for his guys. Oh, she was a beautiful lady, man. She was really dedicated to Wolf, and everything. she just was a, a nice person. You know, Wolf had a nice family, man. Now, hey, one of these houses here. Wait, I'm a, I, I, wait, I'll find out the exact house. I don't want to put the hang on. I'll find out the exact house. Hey, how you doing there? What one of these houses Wolf used to live in? I know he was on the second floor. Oh, I know he was on the second floor, and it was on this side of the street. I know it was in one of these building here because they were on the second floor. Howling Wolf. Did you do? You don't forget. Um, he was on this side of the street. I see. Let's go. Let's walk down here. Well, I'm living here and I don't forget. I moved here so I wouldn't have 
you know, because I was playing with him, and I didn't want to have to go back cross town. And I said, there's a possibility it could have been here, a possibility. Then where? This, this uh, building? Possibly. This building the entrance right here. Okay, in the bar, right here where it looked like you see a tree stump, that was the bar that goes to leads, but it was a walkway to the back. Over here were some tables and chairs. By where this cup is in this little hump, that's where the little bandstand was. And the muddy waters when they played here, he would stand down on the floor. But mainly, Wolf would put him a chair like right here. to get in there and nobody didn't want to pay it. I would give 50 cents to go see Elvis Presley, you know, and the guard at the door would have to, a lot of times put people out because he wanted to come in without paying 50 cents. A blues bar is basically a neighborhood tavern. It might be a little bit bigger. Then people were drinking a lot. They were not using drugs, just drinking a lot. And when they would drink, then they would get loud and they would dance. It was background music for having a ball. They used knives then. Not too much a gunfight, knives. They would, uh, you know, like they would be drinking and they would, I guess, get all teed up and when they get outside, they would see their wives or their girlfriends talking to someone and then they want to fight. A prophet is uh, sort of not recognized in his own country. These guys went overseas and they were treated like big stars and it was a, it was a thrill for him. When I first went over there with him in uh, 1964, the American Folk Blues Festival. Well, when we come down off the airplane and, and in, in Frankfurt, Germany, we went straight to this studio. I'd been in, on a few sound stages, and it was the biggest stage I've ever been on. It was enormous. It was a block and a half long. I mean, it's dark. Thank you. 
after we did the television show and everything, we went to traveling. We went to going Germany, France, and all over whilst we was there, you know, England, ever we did everything. <laughs> pushing them a little bit more. I wanted to see them go farther. And when he showed back up from over there, we had the finest underwear. I know, we'd have and fishnet stockings <laughs> and texture stockings. Someone helped him buy these things, but had such lovely gifts for the all of us. As a matter of fact, I still have some of those little girl Do slips you? and things okay. till today. Finest material, you know, something never wore out. You just couldn't fit them anymore. Let me see my little red I mean, Hubert was the idol of Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton and, you know, uh, Keith Richards and Jimmy Page and all of those electric guitar players from the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> we stopped at a barbershop in Carsdale on our way back to Chicago. And so these people know we're mama. They know this mother. This guy went and got his mama. <laughs> I'm looking at her and whoops. Oh, mama. Started crying, man. I have never seen a $500 bill in my life. But that's, I saw one. Whoops. All this money up, I didn't know that's what it was, man. She had on apron. Big apron. 
crying, and then yeah, they hug one another about the 15 or 20 minutes. She was cussing them out, man. Tell me loose. And she took it in mind. And mother must have felt that money in that apron. Took it out, and I and stomped it, man. And and it opened up when she stomped. I'm looking at a big old $500 bill. I said, oh, Lord, that was a $500 bill. And she thought that Wolf was singing the Del Wolf's music, and she didn't want to have anything to do with him. She walked off and left the money. Left us. Now, you can imagine what this Wolf, what this did to Wolf's head. It was the first time he had seen his mother in maybe 10 years or so. The Wolf cried all the way to Memphis. Please ride my bird. Problem started on a New Year's morning on the way for work, and there he was hit from behind. Not a serious accident, it seems, but I understand certain things can trigger a failed kidney, and, and it did start out like that. You know, they looked for him a kidney almost 10 years uh, for, uh, for a donor, but they never, they never found one. My mother arranged for him to work and have dialysis every place and see doctors and everything. He was okay. My mother used to do it in the basement of our house. We had something look like a washing machine that took all his blood out, cleansed it. I know, but it seemed like a big dryer in a larger mat or a washing machine. And she would uh, put him on the machine like three times a week. And he was doing good, but his heart just wouldn't take the strain. He had two heart attacks, and then he, he got the, oh, he got over him. He got over him. He was so dedicated to his profession, he really should have taken it easy sooner than he did. He would not stop. The doctors asked would he stop, he, he wouldn't stop. This is one of the amazing things about Wolf. I mean, he was willing to go out there to the very end and play his music. He wasn't going to let some little thing like no kidneys like to appeal to the broadest audience possible. You know, he was an entertainer, and so he had no problems trying to appeal to, you know, um, the white audience. And that's why he did that London album with uh, Eric Clapton and uh, a couple of the guys in Stones, Ringo Starr, T.B. Linwood. Oh, that was great. You know, Chesnum didn't want me to go over. They, they really didn't want me to go over there because they, they, they want the Rolling Stones. 
story is that uh, Clapton didn't want to do this thing unless Hubert was invited along. That he called in Chess Brothers and told him, say, hey man, if Hubert don't be there, I won't either. And they had a doctor with Wolf 24 hours. And two nights, Wolf couldn't, couldn't record. I guess when he was recording it, he could only record for a couple of hours a day. But we did the album in eight days. I was taken when Eric Clapton gave Wolf a fishing rod. He knew that Wolf liked to fish and hunt. And Wolf was genuinely touched. And when they did Little Red Rooster, I was in the control room and it was moving the way Clapton and Wolf had that interplay. I think it's a great album, actually. Uh, I don't know why anybody would criticize it, because I think it's, you know, some of Wolf's best performances, considering the shape he was in, and the band behind him, it was great. I mean, they're spectacular. Sure enough, the United London sold more records than I think any blues artist sold at that time. 900,000? I don't have my money. Other nights he'd be sort of laboring, and one thing about him, I mean, he put whatever he had into the music. But it seemed like well, his singing was just as good as ever. Towards the end of his life, he actually did one last big show at the Chicago Amphitheater with B.B. Uh, King and uh, a bunch of other big stars on the bill. We had about uh, 10, 11 bands there. And Wolf went out and gave just an incredible performance. He did a lot of his old tricks. Uh, crawling around on his hands and knees, which must have been really painful. Crawling on his back at one point during Crawling King Snake. And uh, he gave just a tremendous performance. And he got a, a five-minute standing ovation. And he took that show. He took it that night. And he was so tired afterwards that uh, his wife had to call the paramedics. She had to call in the paramedics to sort of revive him. The next night, he played at the 1815 Club like he always did when he wasn't doing anything else. And we all went over and saw Wolf, and it was obvious that he was pretty fatigued, that he extended himself at the, the big show the night before. But he did get through the night, but supposedly right after that was when he went into the hospital and he never, he never played again.
think he's here right now. You can feel things. You can feel these things. Yes, I do. Welcome back. And uh, that was an audio documentary on Chester Arthur Burnett, uh, better known as Howlin' Wolf. And uh, this is Black Music Month here at the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit on this day, uh, Saturday, June 11th, 2022. We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back with more of our program. Um, we're here uh, every week, and of course this month 
we're commemorating the contributions of uh, African people to the uh, mu- music uh, and, of course, various genres of music. Yes, and uh, right now we're going to move into other features uh, here at the Pan-African Journal. Welcome back, and of course, uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now, we're going to listen to another audio documentary on uh, black music uh, in America. Uh, Let's listen in. great artistic contributions to American culture. Its roots are in the music of Africa, the plantation, the city's ghettos, the church, the nightclub, the theater. Black artists have drawn on all these strains to create a new American music. Jazz, hot and cool, swing, bop, rock and roll, rhythm and blues. In 1957, Louis Armstrong visited Ghana in West Africa. Black American music returned to the place from which it had come. First slaves left Africa for the colony of Virginia in 1619. 
In 1700, Mr. Thomas Starks, a slave dealer in London, directed the captain of the ship Africa to take on a cargo of 450 slaves. He included the typical admonition, make your Negroes cheerful and pleasant. Make them dance to the beat of your drum. By 1727, there were 75,000 blacks in the North American colonies. By 1790, there were 10 times that number. By 1800, there were over a million. Blacks now formed nearly 19% of the population of the United States. A naive but well-meaning Thomas Jefferson said, in music, they are generally more gifted than whites, with accurate ears for tune and time. My skin is black And my arms are long Nina Simone sings of black women. My hair is woolly and my back is strong. Strong enough to take all the pain that's been inflicted again and again and again and again and again. What do they call me? My name is Ed Sarah. My skin is brown. And my manner is tough. Cause I swear I'll kill the first person that messes with me. Cause my life has been too rough. I'm awfully bitter these days Because my parents were slaves What do they call me? Black religious and black secular music have blended. The church was always looked upon as a refuge from the alien white world. The spirituals, sometimes called spontaneous generations of song, 
were sung in marvelous complication and variety. This is Mahalia Jackson, one of the great popularizers of the church sound. By the mid-19th century, there had emerged a growing hope, emancipation, an end to slavery. But still, almost 90% of America's blacks were unfree. We're in the same boat, brother. We're in the same boat, brother. And if you shake one end, you're gonna rock the other. It's the same boat, brother. Come here, black woman. Uh, don't you hear me crying, oh Lordy? Thumbs up the woes of black men everywhere. Like Huddy Ledbetter, better known as Lead Belly, sing protest songs first sung at the turn of the century. Good morning, Blue. Good morning, you do. 
During the gay 90s, ragtime music swept the country. Then, ragtime and blues converged into classic New Orleans jazz, one of the fundamental developments in American music. King Oliver's band and Jelly Roll Morton were pioneers in the jazz sound. America started to export some of its talent. Josephine Baker, daughter of a domestic worker from St. Louis, became the toast of the Folie Berger in Paris. Back home, people listened to the Empress of Blues, Bessie Smith, sing W.C. Handy's classic St. Louis Blues. Shot in 1929 is the only film record of the great Bessie Smith. were abruptly brought to an end by the stock market crash of 1929. A frightening depression followed with its unemployment and bread line. The late 30s and early 40s saw a global war. The whole country listened and danced to the music of Count Basie's band. Fame for its pace and vital rhythmic impulse, as well as for its remarkable soloist.
Billie Holiday sang about emotions common to everyone. A noted jazz critic said of her, she's the dark lady of the sonnets. Sometimes you are afraid to listen to this lady, for nothing was more perfect than she was. Love will make you do things that you know is wrong. Holiday lives on today in the music of B.B. King.
creative and influential of all the big band leaders and composer arrangers was Edward Duke Ellington. of innovation in music is carried on today by jazz artists like Julian Cannonball Adderley with cool jazz instrumentals like Mercy, Mercy. African musical tradition was one of primacy of rhythm, sometimes several rhythms going on simultaneously. It was regarded as music for the dance, although the dance involved was often only a mental one. That same musical tradition lives on today in the contemporary music of groups like Sly and the Family Stone.
Black music in America began as the African drum beat and plantation song, ignored and then suppressed by white culture. Today, as the black man has moved into every sphere of American life, his music has become the dominant music of all America. Unforgettable to be young, gifted, and black. Uh, era up until the uh, late 
60s. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. This is Black Music Month. We're commemorating this uh, holiday, which dates back to the late 1970s. Uh, We're going to be commemorating all of this month of June 2022. And uh, my name is Abayomi Azikawe. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit on this day of Saturday, June 11th, uh, 2022. And uh, right now, as we heard uh, in the uh, previous uh, audio documentary uh, reference uh, to the music of uh, Billie Holiday, we have a rare archival interview with Billie Holiday from 1956. Uh, Let's listen in. Special Green Room guest this afternoon is Mademoiselle Billie Holiday, recording artist for Clef Records. Good afternoon, Mademoiselle Holiday. Hello, George. I might add that it is a most pleasant experience to see that you are as personable in person as you are in your famous recordings. Thank you. We always like to ask our guests a question, and we like to compare their answers. Billie, I wonder if you could answer for us, what is jazz? Well, to me, jazz is... Good music and a good feeling. And I'd like to say that everybody can't play jazz. And no one person originated it. No one person uh, created it. I think uh, you just have to have it in you. Or do you concur? Feel it, in other words. You concur with our guests thus far, then, that uh, jazz must uh, be tied in pretty closely with improvising. That's right. I understand, Billy, that you have uh, enlarged your scope of talents, not only to include fine singing, but you've also written a book called A Lady Sings the Blues. I understand, too, that it's a bestseller. Yes, I'm very happy about it. And gee whiz, we tried to get it, and out here in L.A., and it was all sold out in Chicago and New York, and they're making up some new ones. You mean you couldn't buy a copy of your own book? I never read it yet. (laughs) Every one I get, my friends take it away from me. I'll bet they take it away autographed, too. Did you uh, actually write the book, or did you hire a writer to write it for you? No, uh, a friend of mine... uh, uh, Dufty is his name. He's a co-editor for the Post in New York, Post newspaper. And, uh, well, to uh, make a long story short, my husband, one night we were talking, and people had been writing things about me and getting them all wrong and all screwed up. I won't mention the newspapers or the magazines, bless them. So my husband said, why don't you write a book and tell your side? So I uh, went to Bill, and he got the typewriter, and it took us about two, three months. And I just told him he wrote. That's how the book came about. You make it sound so simple, and I'm sure it was a lot of work and, and a lot of inspiration. Billy, you've described jazz uh, somewhat as being a good feeling. Do you have any particular recordings of your own that uh, had this good feeling when you made them? Oh, yeah. I I don't like very many of my records, though, because there's always something I should have did, some note I should have been, some word I should have said, (laughs) I should have slowed down, I went faster. But uh, I I, uh, I like other people's records, Duke Alton, I'm Crazy About Alan, Louis Armstrong. 
They're my favorites. But my records, I know. <laughs> well, I think you're being too critical of your own recordings, uh, Billy. I, I think that, that they're certainly most enjoyable to listen to, despite the fact that you wish you had another chance at them. Billy, what is new? What are, what are your plans for the immediate future? Well, I've, when we leave here, we go to Honolulu, and then we go to... Where do we go? Oh, that's right. We have a concert. Isn't it an outdoor fair or something? First, uh, so concert, outdoors, and then we go to Camden, New Jersey, and then we go to Europe. Well, this is a vacation trip to Europe? or No, honey, no vacations. All work. Well, that's wonderful. That's I vacation while I work, you know. <laughs> well, I know you like to sing because you couldn't sing so well if you didn't like it. Do you like to do anything else particularly? Well, I yeah, tried to um, learn to play golf. My husband's a golf fiend, and, but I like the other thing that he likes, that's fishing. But the only thing I like about it is to sit in the boat and eat hot dogs and drink beer and scream when he catches a fish. And you hope that you don't <laughs> catch any fish? No, I don't think they wiggle too much. I'm afraid to take them off the hook. <laughs> well, I've got to ask you the perennial question then, Mademoiselle Holiday. Who puts the worm on the hook? My husband. He baits your hook for you. Sure, I'm afraid of them. They wiggle. You afraid of everything that wiggles? Why do you like Well, did he ever introduce you to the, the type of uh, bait that is actually mechanical, a little silver Yes, stick? and, and uh, he never introduced me, but uh, he bought this little kit. And nosing me, I went and opened it to see what was inside. And those things are so real, it's getting me to death. I must have threw it a mile. <laughs> You thought he brought home a box full of bugs. <laughs> I think he did. Well, that's wonderful. And and where is your favorite fishing spot? Well, we've been all over Canada and Detroit, out here, and and um, Miami. He went out in the Everglades to go fishing, and in a little boat, and went over an alligator's bank, and a storm came up, and I was praying. He got home with a box full of fish. <laughs> oh, Billy, that's wonderful. Where's your favorite singing spot? Do you have one of those? Well, no, but uh, no, no, no favorite singing spot. I'm at Jersey City now. In fact, I was. I closed last night. But I like mostly like Carnegie Hall, you know, concerts because. People really listen to you in those places, you know. Nobody's drinking or smoking or they concentrate, you know. And next to the concerts, I like nightclubs because everybody's happy and having the ball. <laughs> but do you Even feel... I don't care too much about it. it. scares me. Do you feel there's a difference between the audience that you might encounter in Los Angeles, at Jazz City, for example, or New York or Honolulu? Or... Oh, there's a difference in audience all over the country. Well, how do you please the audiences all over the country so well, then? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> what is the fundamental difference? Well, I don't know. And what is that uh, Eddie Cantor, somebody said, they love me in Boston. <laughs> I, I really don't know. Well, would because you sing... people have been nice to me all over so far. Would you sing different songs in uh, New York than you would in Los Angeles or Honolulu? 
No. You'd program the same numbers? Yes, because I go by uh, my public. They ask me, you know, as a rule. Before I go on, they'll ask for, like a tune I wrote, Don't Explain. They'll ask for that. They'll ask for Strange Fruit. Sing the blues, Billy, you know. So I go by them. I try to please them. Well, one way to certainly please your listeners is to hear one of your cleft recordings called Please Don't Talk About Me While I'm Gone, and one that I'm sure warrants many requests when you make an appearance. Now, we through? Uh, just a real quick wrap-up on it, Billy. Would you, uh, would you, would you, why don't you, George, ask her about who's backing her on this stuff, if you would. All right. Who is? Oh, please don't talk about me. Oh, my God. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, oh, oh, Benny Carter. Harry Edison. Harry Edison. Um, Red Cowan on bass. Red Cowan on bass. Uh, uh, no, no, Jimmy, John Jimmy, Jimmy John Simmons on bass. Jimmy Rowe on piano. Oh, I can't think of it anymore. I don't know who's Bonnie Bonnie Castle on... Bonnie Castle uh, on guitar. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, wait a minute. What did I say? It was Big Speed here, wasn't it? Yeah, oh, wait a minute. It was a counter, man. Oh, it's a counter, man. It's a counter. It's Sweet Edison. Sweet Edison trumpet. Uh... What's that telling me? Well, you got me confused. Benny Carr, Jimmy Rowe, piano, Sweet Jensen, trumpet, um, Barney Castle, guitar, um, John Simmons, bass. Bass. Wait a minute, Daddy, it was six pieces. Another selection by our special green room guest, Mademoiselle Billy Holiday from the Clef album just released called Velvet Moon. I understand they're going to release another album of yours in the very near future, Billy. I understand. Let's turn over. M-O-O-D. Mood. Oh, Velvet Mood. Yeah, I tried well, to it before, but she didn't pay me attention. Oh. <laughs> well, I just thought you were worrying over there. <laughs> Are we rolling, Dick? Another selection by our special green room guest this afternoon, Mademoiselle Billy Holiday, from the new Clef album Velvet Mood. Billy, I understand they're going to release another album of yours in their future. Yes, they are, and I had some swell cats on there with me. Wonderful. Who was backing you up on that? Oh, I had Benny Carter, and uh, alto, and Harry Edison, trumpet, John Simmons, bass, and Jimmy Rowe on piano, Brian Castle. We had a ball. Well, they certainly are some swell cats, as you so aptly put it. I understand, too, that they're going to release a uh, song about your book. carries the same title. Yes, uh, I wrote a little melody called Lady Sings the Blues. We'll certainly be looking for that. Billy, it certainly has been a pleasure to meet you and to be able to chat with you in person in the green room this afternoon. We hope that you'll stop by and see us again real soon. I will, and thank you. Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview with uh, Billie Holiday from 1956. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal. Worldwide radio broadcast uh, for today. We've been paying tribute to uh, Black Music Month uh, for 2022. And we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, If you'd like to have access to this program, Go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. 
That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you want to read the Pan-African Newswire, go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. Now, we're going to close out uh, with a uh, selection of tunes uh, by Billie Holiday, uh, earlier recordings uh, from the 1930s and 1940s. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Yeah.
goodbye Left me with eyes that cry How can I go on, dear, without you You took the part that once was my heart So why Get you in a lot 